Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we give you praise and thanksgiving for this day, for the many blessings seen and unseen. We ask you, Lord, to bless this program, and bless the children in this program and the families. We most especially pray for our children that are that are seeking um, sacraments this year and that are preparing for those sacraments. Uh, we pray for uh, the parish of St. Mary Magdalene and the church, uh, the universal church. And we offer this through the intercession of Our Lady as we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Mary Magdalene, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Come on in, everybody. You can come in and grab a seat. So tonight's talk uh, is called Everyday Carry, the, the Everyday Carry for Catholics. When I kind of started putting this talk together in my head over the summer, I had a kind of a, a good idea of what I wanted to speak on when it came to the Holy Rosary. But recently, a friend of mine, as I was started to this talk, a friend of mine recently gave me this book, which is a large history book, essentially about 400 plus pages on the history of the rosary called The Champions of the Rosary by Father Don Calloway. And when I picked this book up, my whole talk kind of rapidly changed. And I realized what I wanted to talk about was, was I had an idea, but then it, it just changed. Let's just say that. Um, I'm going to go through this in a matter of about 45 minutes. There is literally, I could give probably 20 talks on the rosary, and each talk could be two hours long. That's how much information is not only just in this book, but also just general information about the rosary. The reason why I'm calling this talk is the everyday carry for Catholics is because it is the primary weapon that should be carried for us as Catholics. Now, let me back up and say this. The everyday, ca everyday carry has two connotations. One, it has to do with the everyday things that we carry, the things that we carry. Keys, okay? So keys, work, work keys, car keys, all right? Cell phone, my smartphone, my wallet, okay? Some people carry flashlights, multi-tools, okay? I actually have my knife with me today, okay? So all these different things that people carry on an everyday basis. That's what people everyday carry means in one sense. The other sense is that in the firearms industry, everyday carry means the kind of firearm, a pistol usually, that you carry. Either you carry or your spouse carries. So... With that in mind, the rosary, as Padre Pio says, is the rosary, the rosary is the weapon for these times. So for a Catholic, the everyday, the everyday carry that we should all be carrying is a holy rosary, okay? In the firearms industry, people will say you carry to protect life, not to take life. Well, the rosary is the same thing. You're preserving your spiritual life with the Holy Rosary. 
And as Padre Pio says, again, the rosary is a weapon for these times. As many of us know, the rosary is probably one of the most popular devotions amongst Catholics worldwide and has been for many years. The formal name is the Most Holy Rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary, but other names also include the Dominican Rosary, which we'll learn more about why it's the Dominican Rosary, the Marian Rosary, or the Vita Christi Rosary, the Life of Christ Rosary. And there are different types of rosaries out there as well. There's the Seven Sorrows Rosary, and there's other ones as well. Tonight, we're specifically talking about the Loretta Rosary, uh, which is the one that I have in my pocket and which most people think about. Now, the rosary actually has four elements to it. And these elements existed prior to really the invention of the rosary, if you want to say, or like the, when Our Lady gives it to St. Dominic. There's four elements that existed prior to the 12th century. One is the Hail Mary. It's been prayed by the faithful since the 6th century. It was a prayer at first just to honor Mary, although it was not quite an intercessory prayer, and it was seen as a prayer before one would ask for a petition. Then we have the Our Father, which has been prayed also by the faithful from the early centuries. The Our Father was given to us by Jesus himself in the Gospels. But the Hail Mary and the Our Father were never put together as prayers that were said together. Then we have what's called prayer beads. Prayer beads were invented because people would pray their prayers on a daily basis, and instead of carrying around stones or rocks in your pockets, which could count, you know, add up to be a lot, they invented prayer beads in a way to count your prayers. Prayer beads go actually all the way back to the 4th century. St. Jerome talks about beads. The prayer that was said on these beads was the Our Father. The prayer beads became known as the Pater Noster beads, and most Pater Noster beads consisted of 50 beads. Then you had what's known as the Marian Psalter. To mirror the 150 Psalms in the Old Testament, which often said by monks in the early church, and still said today in the church in what we know as the Liturgy of the Hours, the Marian Psalter was invented and promoted by the Cistercians and Cartusians. These are two orders in the church. As a way that the lay faithful could pray to Mary in case they could not read. So monks in the early church and throughout the centuries of the church would pray the 150 Psalms that are in the Old Testament. But if you couldn't read, you could just recite the Hail Mary, and that was known as the Marian Psalter. During the 11th century, the Marian Psalter, along with the Pater Noster beads, grew in popularity among monks and the lay faithful. Eventually, the Pater Noster beads were used to pray 150 Hail Marys. Within a short time, 15 Our Fathers were added to break up the 150 Hail Marys into sets of then 10. These sets of 10 became known as decades, which is the term that we're all familiar with when it comes to a rosary today. So this is what we get prior to the 12th century and prior to St. Dominic. Now, as we get into the 12th century, St. Dominic, who is the founder of the Dominicans, is closely associated with the, with the rosary because Our Lady herself instructed Dominic on the rosary and on preaching the Marian Psalter. Beginning in the, the beginning of the 12th century, a heresy arose in southern France known as Albigensianism 
Now, we could go down a rabbit hole, of, of a deep rabbit hole, going into this heresy. Essentially, Albigensians believed that a good deity created the world of the spirit, and an evil god created the material world, including the human body, which is under its control. The good deity sent Jesus Christ as a creature to deliver, to deliver human souls from their imprisonment. However, since Christ became a human being, a material being himself, he himself was evil. So the Albigensians started going throughout Europe and started, uh, you know, kind of spreading this philosophy. This philosophy had three heads to it. It had the head of the preaching in the towns. It had kind of a political aspect to it. And then it also had a military aspect to it. So Pope Innocent III, during this time, established a crusade against this, against all, through, through all three avenues. So the crusade aspect of the military and political version, and then the, the Dominicans and St. Dominic took to the towns in southern France to fight this philosophy. The fight actually proved to be way more than they thought because this heresy kind of embedded itself into southern France. So Dominic, not really knowing what to do, retreated to a forest in France where he prayed for three days and three nights. And he spent that time fasting and asking heaven to send him help. Well, after three days, the queen of heaven appeared to him accompanied by three angels. Our lady said that his efforts were noble. She said this to him. She said, your, no your efforts are noble and good, what you've done so far against the Albigensians. But what you need is the Ave Maria. So Ave Maria Gratia Plenis, the first part of the, the Hail Mary. That's what you need. You need essentially the angelic, part of, you know, the angelic Psalter. She said this to Dominic. Dear Dominic, do you know which weapon the Blessed Trinity wants to use to reform the world? Oh, my lady, answered St. Dominic, you know far more than I do because next to your son, Jesus Christ, you've always been the chief instrument of our salvation. Then Our Lady replied, I want you to know that in this kind of warfare, the battering ram has always been the angelic psalter, which is the foundation stone of the New Testament. Therefore, if you want to reach these hardened souls and win them over to God, preach my psalter. So the angelic psalter and the evangelical aspect of it was, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And that was the Hail Mary from essentially the 6th century to the 14th century, which we'll, I'll tell you why it changed shortly. With St. Dominic, she said to St. Dominic, don't preach on the Marian Psalter. Pray the Marian Psalter. Use the Marian Psalter. Use it as a tool. Use it as a weapon against these hardened souls. After St. Dominic, the, the, uh, the Marian Psalter became more of a uh, meditative dimension to it, had more of an apostolic mention to it. Because before, before, in the 6th century, and before Dominic, like I said, it was more prayer that was said to ask Mary of a petition. There was no intercessory aspect to it as of yet. She also divided, she also instructed him to divide the 150 Hail Marys of the Marian Psalter into 10 Hail Marys, with each decade receiving a mystery. The faithful would then pray the Hail Marys and meditate on the mysteries, and the mysteries were directly answering the errors of the Albigensians. 
So the mysteries that she gave. So the church believes that Our Lady gave us mysteries. She didn't give us the mysteries that we know. Like she didn't say, well, this is going to be one, two, three, and four. But she specifically said to Dominic, and they developed from there, that these mysteries will focus on the incarnation, which the Annunciation, which the joyful mysteries do, the passion, the sorrowful mysteries focus on them, and the glorious triumph of our son, the glorious mysteries then focus on those mysteries. So from here, that's where they kind of, this is where you get this answer. So that this is where, this is where our lady says, you did a noble thing fighting the Albigensians, but to really fight them, you need the Ave Maria. And this is where she gives it to him. She gives it to him at, in, with, the, with the beginning of the Holy Rosary. And at this point, this is where the Holy Rosary began, when our lady gives it to St. Dominic, as you see in this picture here this artistic drawing of Our Lady appearing with Jesus and St. Dominic receiving uh, the, the rosary from her. The rosary then spreads into Europe as after St. Dominic, it continues to spread further into Europe and, it's, and it develops and, and spreads through what's called voluntary confraternities. These are associations and groups that prayed the rosary together. So think about this when next month when we're in the chapel praying the rosary together, Praying the rosary goes back all the way to the 12th century, in the 12th and 13th century, with St. Dominic. This is how far it goes back. So when we pray it together, it goes all the way back to this point. The rosary, though, nearly vanished in the 14th century with the Black Plague, otherwise known as the Black Death. In four years, there were 25 million people killed by the Black Plague. It was during this time that the petition element was attached to the Hail Mary. So this is where we get that last part of the Hail Mary. Hail, Holy Mary, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. This was attached to the Hail Mary because for a lot of people, their death was at, you know, you could wake up that one, one morning and be dead by noon because of the, the black death had taken so many lives. So people added that aspect as a way to pray to offer an intercessory to Our Lady even at the point of their death. However, this part of the prayer was not made an official part of the prayer until the 16th century when the prayers of the rosary were codified by the church. Although the rosary became a, became a devotion in the church, it wasn't until Blessed Alan de la Roche, a Dominican priest, began to passionately promote the devotion in the 15th century. Jesus, Our Lady, and St. Dominic all appeared to Blessed Allen and instructed him to write a book on the history of the Dominican Rosary. This book became an instruction manual for the Rosary. So that dialogue that I read to you between Dominic and Our Lady when she appears to him actually comes from these apparitions. Through the confraternity of the Rosary, the Rosary's popularity grew throughout all of Europe. Blessed Allen was able to encourage people to join which helped promote the rosary, and the devotion rapidly grew. Throughout the 16th century, the devotion to the rosary continued to grow through more confraternities that quickly spread and flourished now throughout all of Europe. So it went from southern France, and then from southern France, it started to spread all throughout the different countries of Europe. Where the rosary even got stronger, which some people would say maybe it would have taken a weaker, like it would have gotten weaker, was also during the Protestant Reformation. 
as the Protestants started to rebel against the church, actually more Catholics started praying the rosary on a daily basis and praying it more and more with their families. Because it was Martin Luther that actually critiqued the rosary for the first time. He hated the rosary because it had an intercessory element to it, asking Our Lady to pray for us. Martin Luther hated the church, hated, hated the saints, and most especially hated the, it really hated the idea of the Holy Rosary and Mary's role in it. Martin Luther did have kind of a devotion to Our Lady at first, kind of, he, you know, he believed that she was the Holy Mother of God, but when you add the intercessory element of asking her for prayers, that's where his disgust really came with it, and he, he rebelled and really, really criticized it all. It was also during this time that a lot of the his, a lot of miracles also started to occur with the rosary, most especially in the missionary lands across the world as the church started to spread into the new world. But it wouldn't be until Lepanto where the rosary in Europe would kind of take its, 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 like its stronghold and its last, it's like, it's, like the, its footing in Europe became permanent uh, after Lepanto. The Battle of Lepanto which took place on October 7th of 1571, took place between a patchwork fleet of Catholic ships, primarily from Spain, Venice, and Genoa. So Spain was its own country, and Genoa and Venice were essentially, uh, like they were city-states that were part of Italy because Italy wasn't unified yet as a country. Under the command of Don Juan of Austria, uh, they were at a very much dis a disadvantage. They were outnumbered at least 10 to 1. The much larger fleet of the Ottoman Empire, a force with close to 12 to 15,000 Christian slaves as rowers, was extending its way through Europe. However, St. Pope Pius V, realizing that the Muslim Turks had a decided material advantage, called upon all of Europe to pray the rosary for victory. So word went out throughout all of Europe. On this day, this was the day that the fleets would meet in the Mediterranean. On this day, pray the Holy Rosary for victory. Pray to Our Lady for victory. Christians gathered in villages and towns to pray as the sea battle raged. And at the hour of victory, the Pope, who was hundreds of miles away at the Vatican, is said to have gotten up from a meeting, walked over to an open window, exclaiming, The Christian fleet is victorious and shed tears of joy and thanksgiving to God. Coming at what was seen as a crisis point for Christianity, the victory at Lepanto stemmed Ottoman, the Ottoman incursion into the Mediterranean and prevented their influence spreading throughout all of Europe. It was through the hand of Our Lady and the Holy Rosary that prevented the Muslims from the east of overcoming the Christian West. So from this point, we get now, so you have this battle of Lepanto, the battle of Lepanto. In regards to Lepanto, now we have what we know as Our Lady of Victory. In 1571, Pope Pius V instituted Our Lady of Victory as an annual feast in giving thanksgiving for Mary's patronage and helping save the Christian, uh, the Christian fleet over the Muslim Turks. Two years later, in 1573, Pope Gregory XIII changed the title of this feast to the Feast of the Holy Rosary. This annual commemoration, which would happen on the first Sunday of the month, before, became known as Rosary Sunday. And in 1716, 
Pope Clement XI extended the feast to the whole of the Latin Rite, inserting it into the Roman calendar of calendar, the Roman Catholic calendar of saints, and assigning it to the first Sunday in October. Then in 1913, Pope Pius X changed the date to October 7th as part of this effort to restore the celebration of the liturgy of the Sundays. We now celebrate Our Lady, Our Lady of the Rosary on this date. So nine days ago, we celebrate, every year when we celebrate Our Lady of the Rosary, it comes from this feast day of Our Lady, the, Our Lady of Victory, because on October 7th, that was the day the Christian fleet defeated the Muslim Turks. Now, I gave you a very quick overview of Lepanto. There are books that are written on Lepanto, um, on the history of Lepanto, and what kind of led up to it, and then also what you could find it. If you're a history buff, you like history, it's a phenomenal, uh, it's a great book to read. It's a very good history. Now, we're going to jump from the 16th century to the 18th century because we're, we're jumping over 200 years because, let's be honest, there's just so much information to cover. I can't cover it all in 45 minutes. So we're going to jump into what we, who's known as St. Louis de Montfort and the Secret of the Rosary. The Secret of the Rosary, written by St. Louis de Montfort during the early 18th century, is still considered the greatest book on the rosary, even to this day. And this is it right here. This is my original copy that I've had for many years. It's 115 pages in total length. Through a series of roses, or a sequence of roses, the secret of the rosary gives a detailed historical account of the rosary as well as speaks of countless stories surrounding the rosary. What was happening again in France in the 18th century was there was a lot of anti-Catholic movements in Europe, but most, most especially again in France. It is here that St. Louis lived and preached, and it is here where he penned this masterpiece. The other great work that St. Louis de Montfort wrote is also A True Devotion to Mary. This is a book that specifically focuses on devotion to Mary and on consecration to Jesus through Mary. We are actually going to be doing a Marian consecration here at the parish starting November 9th and ending on December 12th, which is the feast day of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And tonight, when you guys go home, probably in about, well, in about an hour or so, you're going to get a text message from us explaining why, how the parish is doing the Marian consecration. And like, if, if you want to participate, participating in this Marian consecration. The true devotion consecration by St. Louis de Montfort, let me tell you, is not for the, it's not for the weak. It is, it'll put you through the ringer, okay? But that's what sometimes our spiritual life needs, is to be through a ringer, dragged through it and dragged out of it, because sometimes we need that. I know personally, there's times where my prayer life was terrible, and I needed the kind of a kick in the tail uh, to kind of wake me up, okay? You want to kick in the tail? The saints are, you know, they're more obliged to do it for us than anyone out there that, you know, even our own fam family and friends, the saints will take it to us. Louis de Montfort's devotion and consecration is absolutely, now I've never done it, but I have friends that have done it, and that's what they say. Their faith is, their, their spiritual life was taken through the ringer. The, um, the devotion to Mary and consecration, again, is the consecration to Mary is essentially it's consecrating ourselves to Jesus, but through Our Lady. 
it is uh, it is amazing to do. It will change life. It'll it'll change your relationship both with the Blessed Mother and Jesus. Now, De Montfort has said a lot of things about the Rosary. Two things that stood out for me were were these two quotes. Never will anyone who says his rosary every day be led astray. This statement that I would glad this is a statement that I would gladly sign in blood or sign with blood. Also, he says, we never give more honor to Jesus than we honor his mother. And we honor her simply and solely to honor him all the more perfectly. Again, personal experience. One of those aha moments for my life, for my spiritual life, was when I did the Marian consecration. The Marian consecration that we're doing at the parish is actually part of a book called 33 Days of, uh, 33 Days of Morning Glory, or to Morning Glory. And it's written by, actually, Father Don Calloway. Um, and it's a book that focuses on Louis de Montfort, Pope St. John Paul II, St. Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa, and St. Maximilian Colby. And if you have the chance to do it, again, the link that I'm going to send out tonight to everybody will explain more about the Marian consecration. But it is by far something that I would highly encourage you to do. Now, even though heaven and our late, you know, heaven and through Our Lady gave us the rosary through St. Dominic, I personally believe Lourdes and Fatima are kind of heaven's stamp on the rosary through these two apparitions, kind of their approval of what the church was doing at the time. So the rosary happens, we see the rosary at both Lourdes and Fatima. It was during the age of the rosary that Our Lady appeared to St. Bernadette at Lourdes. When she appeared to Bernadette a total of 18 times, the significant aspect that was reported to or reported by Bernadette was that Our Lady appeared holding a rosary. After this appearance to Bernadette, the rosary, which wasn't prayed much in Europe at the time, except in Lourdes, made a major comeback as a devotion of the lay faithful in the church after the approval of Lourdes by Blessed Pope Pius IX. The age of the rosary began in 1830 with St. Catherine Labor and the Miraculous Medal. Our Lady appeared to her in 1830. And the age of the rosary ended with the Marian year of 1954. During this century, we also had what's, who's known as the Pope of the Rosary. The Pope of the Rosary is Pope Leo XIII. Pope Leo XIII loved the Rosary so much and had such a great devotion to it that he wrote 11 different encyclicals to the ro- on the Rosary. These, an encyclical is a letter that goes, from, goes out from the Pope to the Universal Church. Now, Leo XIII wrote just about as much as John Paul II. John Paul II wrote a lot, but so, so did Saint Leo the, or Pope Leo the Thirteenth. The Saint Michael the Archangel prayer that we pray that that is often traditionally prayed after Mass that is also given to us by Pope Leo the Thirteenth. So this age of the Rosary, there's over I think I've read ten to twelve different. I think there's I think there's actually twelve, but there's twelve appearances in the 18th century where Our Lady appears to different people in apparitions. Then, the other kind of confirmation from heaven that the church is doing well with the rosary is Our Lady of Fatima. The apparitions at Fatima are essentially rosary apparitions because each time she appeared to the three children, each time she appeared, she always had a rosary in her hand. 
Although she did this at Lourdes, Fatima, at Fatima she gave specific instructions on the rosary about praying the rosary on a daily basis, and she also said that if you pray the rosary, World War I will end. At Fatima, Our Lady spoke about the rosary constantly. Every apparition, every appearance, she mentions the rosary and the daily praying of the rosary. It is here at Fatima that we receive also the Fatima prayer that was said to be the end of, uh, that, was, that is said at, end, at the end of each of the decades. And the Fatima prayer is, Oh my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell, lead all souls to heaven, most especially those who, most especially those who most need in your mercy. That's the Fatima prayer. The angel that appeared with Our Lady taught the three children. And that is from this point forward, after Fatima, it was instructed at Fatima to add that to the rosary. And then the other big aspect of Fatima is that Our Lady referred to herself as the Our Lady of the Rosary. So these, th these two major apparitions in the church, and I've written them on my website and blog countless times on both of these, I said, like I said, personally, it's not what the church teaches this, but I personally believe it's like a stamp of approval from heaven saying what the church is doing is a good thing with the rosary because we see Our Lady appearing with the rosary. The other thing, too, about this is that the traveling, oh, excuse me, so the traveling statue of, uh, there's, a, there's, multi, there's two traveling statues of Our Lady of Fatima that travel the world. This is the one that appeared here, or came to, not appeared, but came to the parish in October of 2017, nearly two years ago uh, tonight. I think, I, think, I think it was here right around uh, this time two years ago, and that was a traveling statue. Beautiful, a beautiful image to Our Lady of Fatima. Now we're going to jump from 2017 into the late 20th century with Pope St. John Paul II and the Luminous Mysteries. Pope St. John Paul II said a few weeks after his pontificate, pontificate began in 1978 that the Holy Rosary was his favorite prayer. A reporter asked him, what is your favorite prayer, Holy Father? And he said, the Rosary is my favorite prayer. A marvelous prayer, marvelous in its simplicity and in its depth. This is how the um, pontificate of John Paul II would begin. Now, if you're unaware... John Paul II's mother, when he was a young boy, died um, uh, when he was very, very young. And at that point, he said, to his, he said to Mary, now that my mother's gone, you have to become my mother. And from that point on, he firmly believed that Our Lady became his mother. And he attributed him, himself becoming Pope and his life being saved through Our Lady. Don't forget, he survived the Nazis of World War II, and then he survived years of communism and socialism uh, in Poland as well, because once the Nazis left, the, 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 the socialists came in as well. And he is the only pope to this day, the first pope to do so, and the only pope to do it, is to put the letter M on his papal shield to represent Mary, because that's how much he loved the Blessed Mother and how much she had, what she had done for him. Although other popes before him have written on the rosary, he made history when in 2002 he wrote the apostolic letter Rosarium Virginis Maria, which is in English on the Most Holy Rosary. And he said some rather profound points about the rosary 
such as the rosary, though clearly Marian in character, is at heart a Christocentric prayer. In the sobriety of its elements, it has all the depth of the gospel message in its entirety, of which can be said to be a contemplation. He also says the rosary does indeed the mark, uh, does indeed mark the rhythm of life, bringing it into harmony with the rhythm of God's own life in the joyful communion of the Holy Trinity, our life's destiny and deepest longing. But the historical moment came when he said, in proposing to the Christian community five significant moments, luminous mysteries, during this phase of Christ's life, each of these mysteries is a revelation of the kingdom now present in the very person of Jesus. It was here that he gave the church the five new mysteries of light, otherwise known as the luminous mysteries. He exhorted that everyone pray the rosary. He said, I look to you, brothers and sisters of every state of life, to you, Christian families, and to you, sick and elderly, and to you, young people, confidently take up the rosary once again, rediscover the rosary in light of the scripture, in harmony with the liturgy, and in context of your daily lives. Although the rosary is popular, it has gone through these waves of, you know, where it's become very popular and then, you know, maybe it dips down again in its popularity and people aren't praying it again. Again, John Paul II, even though in 2002 the rosary was popular and it's, you know, in the modern church it's a very popular devotion, um, he's still saying, pray this together. Everybody should be praying this, most especially Christian families. Now, this was controversial when this came out. I don't know if anyone remembers this. In 2002, there were people inside the church as well as outside of the church, people that were not in communion with the church, that believed he had no right to do this because the original three mysteries, the joyful, sorrowful, and glorious mysteries, as I've explained to you, were given to us by Our Lady, or at least the seed to us by Our Lady, to St. Dominic. People were mad and upset that he, get, he came up with these new mysteries. Personally, I love the Luminous Mysteries. I think they're fantastic. John Paul II, I'm a, now, I'm a JP2 junkie, okay? I love John Paul II. I've written on John Paul II probably 50 times in eight years, okay, if not more. Um, I, I eat everything up, okay? I'm thinking about even changing my license plate to JP2 Gen. So it would be like JP2 Generation. So I just got to make sure it's affordable to do the Vanity Plate. So, um, but, because um, my registration's coming up, so that's why I'm thinking about it. So, um, but that's, I mean, that's how much I am when it comes to JP2. So, I love these luminous mysteries. But see, the thing is why I really like them is because as an evangelist in the church, as one who works for the church, the idea that what JP2 says, what John Paul II says in this quote, revelation of the kingdom now present in the very person of Jesus we see the luminous mysteries in the kingdom of God. The church is considered part of the kingdom of God. It's the visible kingdom of God. You know, heaven and purgatory are also part of that, but we don't see heaven and purgatory. We see what's the visible part. And that's what these luminous mysteries, though, are still the entire kingdom, the visible and the invisible, because these are elements that we see in our everyday life as Catholics. And I'll get to that shortly and explain that more in more detail when I go through the mysteries. 
But, you know, there's a, a point in history where John Paul II did a, a, a wonderful thing for the church. This is, this is only one thing of many things that he did that, uh, that brought beauty and uh, a more um, spiritual depthness to the, to the a deepness to the church. So although this is probably going to be elementary for some of you, it could be good review for others. I want to just briefly go through the mysteries of the rosary very quickly. The joyful mysteries, which are recited on Mondays and Saturdays, is the, the joyful mysteries are the Annunciation of the Lord, the Visitation of Mary to Elizabeth. So the Annunciation is when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. The Visitation is when Mary then goes to the hill country to see her cousin Elizabeth. The Nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the birth of Jesus. The Presentation of the Temple, our, of our Lord in the Temple, that's when Jesus was presented in the table at eight days. And then the finding of Jesus in the temple when Jesus was 12 years old. The sorrowful mysteries are recited on Tuesdays and Fridays. The agony of Jesus in the garden, the scourging at the pillar. Jesus is crowned with thorns. Jesus carries the cross. And then the crucifixion of the Lord. Now, most people traditionally have been raised that you kneel during the Holy Rosary. If you're not kneeling, which is it's not it's not it's not like a promulgation, but most people just do it out of devotion. If you're not kneeling during the crucifixion of the Lord, during that last mystery, most people kneel because it shows the reverence and the respect and kind of that devotion to Jesus. That's why, you know, on Good Friday, it's um you know, we always kind of, that's why on the, like in the Good Friday service, the priests come out, um, there's no music or no kind of entrance antiphon. They come out and they kind of prostrate themselves before our Lord. So kind of giving that respect to our Lord in his crucifixion. That's why you kneel, if you're not kneeling at the crucifixion of the Lord. The glorious mysteries is the resurrection of Jesus the ascension of Jesus, the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the assumption of Mary into heaven, and the coronation of Mary as queen of heaven and earth. It's recited on Wednesdays and on Sundays. And you see it's like a chronological weekly element to these mysteries. The coronation and the assumption are not scriptural. They're not in sacred tradition, but they are in, or they're not in sacred scripture, but they are in sacred tradition. And we truly, we believe that Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven and then she, had, she was coronated uh, as queen of heaven and earth. It's a whole other talk in and of itself, talking about the assumption and coronation. If you go to my website, tomperna.org, and put it assumption or coronation, there's, again, countless articles that I've written on both of these topics. And then lastly, the luminous mysteries recite it now on Thursdays, so it kind of chronologically follows all the other days. We have the baptism in the Jordan, the wedding at Cana, the proclamation of the kingdom, the transfiguration, the institution of the Holy Eucharist. Why? So these are actually, so like going back to JP2's quote about them being relevant and seen in the kingdom. Well, think about it. The baptism in the Jordan isn't just Jesus' baptism, which that's what we're celebrating, but it also has to do with our baptism as well. It's the first sacrament that we receive as infants, usually traditionally as infants. The wedding at Cana. The wedding at Cana is all about the sacrament of holy matrimony. Uh, I can't say enough about marriage now that I am married, too. 
if, if for whatever reason you are not married in the church, um, and there's a lot of reasons why people choose not to or they don't know they, they should, if you're not, I would encourage you to convalidate your marriage because, as Father Will once said, marriage is hard enough, but without the grace of the sacraments, it's even harder. Um, you know, and I've heard countless couples say this as well. So the wedding at Cana is, is important because it focuses on marriage, and it's something that our culture is constantly attacking nowadays. The proclamation of the kingdom has to do with evangelization, evangelizing to the world, which is the primary duty of the church. That's the key's primary role is to preach the gospel, preach the charisma, preach the good news, go out to all the world. The transfiguration for Jesus happened before his crucifixion. It was a foreshadowing of what his body would look like after the crucifixion. It's also for us, if we make it to heaven, God willing, we all make it to heaven someday because it's not guaranteed. I mean, it's guaranteed by Jesus, but we got to do our work to get. We, it's not automatic. We're not just going to get there. We got to do our work as well. Our bodies will be glorified bodies. They'll be transformed bodies. And then the institution of the Holy Eucharist. Obviously, Jesus gives us the Holy Eucharist in himself through the crucifixion, through the institution at the Last Supper, which is all combined, all connected. It's the sacrament of all sacraments. It's the sacrament that gives all the other sacraments their, their, their power. Now, why should one pray this rosary? Why should we pray the rosary? Well, the Holy, the Holy Rosary gradually gives us perfect knowledge of Jesus Christ. You want to really understand Jesus? Pray a rosary. The Holy Rosary purifies our souls, washing away sin. The Holy Rosary gives us victory over all of our enemies. The Holy Rosary makes it easier to practice virtue. Personally, when I'm praying a daily rosary, I am more charitable to other people, most especially on the road. Okay? I, I, just, I see the difference in myself when I'm praying the rosary. Um, I am, I, you know, my, my confession is always the same thing. I say the same, I've been saying the same thing in confession for 20 years um, but with, with slight changes here and there. And, but I realize when I'm praying the rosary, it, it allows, it, I'm, I'm, I'm a better person. I'm more charitable. The Holy Rosary sets us on fire with the love of our blessed Lord and, and uh, blessed Lord and blessed mother. So really, it, it helps us engage that relationship with both of them. The Holy Rosary enriches us with graces and merits. The Holy Rosary supplies us with what is needed to pay all our debts to God and to our fellow man, and it obtains all kinds of graces for us from Almighty God. And lastly, the Holy Rosary conquers the evil one. When you think about temptation in your daily life, go to Our Lady. When Satan's tempting you, go to Our Lady, because the rosary and the Hail Mary are essentially like punching Satan right in the face, okay? This is a 13th century fresco that I found. I didn't have this for last night's talks. A 13th century fresco of literally punching Satan in the face. Now, how do we know, how do we know this to be true? I know a few exorcists. These are priests that are trained in the exorcism rite. Exorcisms have been on, on an uptick uh, drastically in the last 20 years. There are more priests out there, more dioceses have 
have exorcists. If a diocese doesn't have a, a, a designated exorcist, the bishop is the exorcist. But most dioceses not only have one, they also have a few. Because there's such an uptick in evil, um, we need this, this right practice more and more. In his book, The Last Exorcist, composed of texts from various blogs, Father Gabriel Armuth, who was the chief exorcist for the Diocese of Rome, reports an entire dialogue he had in this role as an exorcist with the devil. Now, through a possessed person, an exorcist often engages the devil or a demon, maybe speaking for Satan. But all these demons, they all show allegiance to Satan. So when they speak, it's essentially the devil speaking. If you want more information about this, I would suggest you read An Exorcist Tells a Story by the same gentleman, by the same priest, Father Gabriel Armorth. So the dialogue goes like this. Father Armorth, in one of the exorcisms, says, What are the virtues of the Madonna that makes you the angriest? She makes me angry because she's the humblest of all the creatures and because I am the proudest, because she's the purest of all creatures and I am not, because of all creatures, she's the most obedient to God and I am a rebel. Father Amorth responds, tell me the fourth characteristic of the Madonna that makes you so afraid of her that you are more afraid when I say the Madonna's name than when I say the name of Jesus Christ. The demon responds, I am more afraid when you say the Madonna's name because I am more humiliated by being beaten by a simple creature than by him. Father Amorth says, tell me the fourth characteristic of the Madonna that makes you most angry. The demon responds, because she always defeats me, because she was never compromised by any taint of sin. During another exorcism, Father Amorth remembers, Satan told me, through the possessed person, every Hail Mary of the rosary is a blow to the head for me. If Christians knew the power of the rosary, it would be the end for me. So, at the end of this talk, before Mary and Christy come on, we're going to pray a Hail Mary together. Um, we prayed a Hail Mary at the beginning of the night, and it was okay. But tonight I want you to pray with some gusto. Because this, imagine giving Satan a right hook, okay, or an uppercut. Or if you watch, if you watch uh, a wrestle, you know, what's the MMA, is it the MMA? If you watch it like a kick to Satan's head, okay, and then like you know, jumping on him and choking on him. Okay, that's, that's essentially what we need to do when it comes to uh, the devil. Briefly, a couple, just a couple real brief quotes. Since this is family catechesis, here's a couple quotes about the rosary in regards to the family. There are no surer means of calling God's blessings upon the family than the daily recitation of the rosary. For one million families praying the Holy Rosary every day, the entire world would be saved. So Pope Pius XII and Pope St. Pius X. And then a couple more quotes. As mariners are guided into the port by the shining of a star, so Christians are guided to heaven by Mary. And then this is really one of my favorite ones. By Father Ronan Murphy, the rosary is a Bible on a string. Because if you think about it, on a string, we, we focus on the life of Christ in the Holy Rosary. 
We're going to pray this Hail Mary. I want you to pray it with some gusto. Remember, it's like punching Satan in the face, okay? And then I'm going to give you a couple of announcements, and then Mary and Christy are going to come on. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Mary Magdalene, Our Lady of the Rosary, and the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.